Greetings, folks, and a warm welcome back to Intersections. Our aspiration here is to allow us to dissolve those, those boundaries that sometimes limit us from seeing things to their fullest sense of possibilities, from being able to be open to new kinds of pathways and breakthroughs that we might get from time to time to expand our horizons and arrive at a fullest potential, fullest potential as individuals, as teams, as organizations, and as humanity. Today, our focus is going to be on something really deep at the very core of who you are and who the organization is where you work, which is your values. I have as our guest, Professor Paul Ingram, who is one of my very dear and well-regarded colleagues at Columbia Business School, who over the last decade has invested a lot of heart and thought in this arena of what it takes to activate and then express your values. So Paul is the Kravis Professor of Business at the Business School. He received his bachelor's in accounting from the Brock University in Canada, where he received the Governor General's Award as a top graduating student. He went to Cornell, where he received his MS and his PhD in organizational behavior, has been a faculty at uh, Carnegie Mellon, and then most recently, of course, at Columbia Business School. He's received many awards for his Passion is an excellence in teaching, the Dean's Award for Teaching Excellence and the Commitment to Excellence Award. He's taught at a number of other universities internationally as well. His courses on management and strategy, they are very actively informed by his research on organizations, which he has studied across a number of geographies, including Israel and Scotland, China, Korea, Australia, beyond the United States and Canada. His research has been published in a large number of articles and book chapters and books, and he's received a number of distinctions for this, including the Gould Prize from the American Journal of Sociology. He's consulted on a large number of these issues, continues to be very active in scholarship and in consulting around themes of leadership and organizational design and strategy to leading companies and industries. And his current research in particular focuses on culture and social networks and the role, as I've said, of values in business. So it is my great joy uh, to invite into our midst, Professor Paul Ingram. Paul, thank you for joining us. Welcome. It's a real pleasure, Hatendra. And I've also enjoyed seeing in the chat that there's a lot of uh, old friends from Colombia and elsewhere. So I'm happy uh, to be with you again and, uh, and with uh, the people I haven't met yet. Yeah. Well, I want to just start by thanking you because in my own journey in moving, in a sense, like my passions and interests from strategy and marketing into, into human potential and leadership, Early on, you know, there's this period when one is a little bit unsure of one's footing and one is, you know, seeking to activate that inner voice, in a sense, in my own values and bring them out into a practical expression and seek some kind of, you know, reassurance from the world that this is going to work. <laughs> you know, this new path is going to work. And in those early unsteady days when I was still kind of like a toddler, right, and uh, now I'm just like a bumbling youth, you know, in this area. But when I was that toddler, I mean, Paul, I mean, it was amazing. You were just so interested and open and encouraging and proactive and just giving me more confirmation that, look, this is a good path for you, Atendra, and come and, you know, present in, in this guest executive audience and that one, et cetera. And I always look back at that as a very formative and important act of support, you know, that came from you. Well, I learn every something every time I see you in one of these classes. So it's been, uh, if anything, it's certainly been more rewarding for me. But I appreciate, uh, appreciate your recognition of our early work together. Yeah. And what I'm noticing is that since then, Paul, our paths are converging more and more. You know, your research has gone into areas which have a lot to do with um, understanding the inner psyche of, of a leader from the vantage point of them as a human being. 
And so can you talk a little bit about what led you to be interested? I mean, today, this topic of values is getting a lot of currency. You know, things have turned around, you know, so much in the last, you know, 12 months, both in people's homes and in their own personal, you know, soul searching, as well as in organizations. And the idea of purpose and meaning and fulfillment and well-being and, and values is, is, you know, very, very, very central today. But, but you've been at it for about 10 odd years. So what is it that at that stage when it wasn't really very fashionable to be investing in these things that got you sparked? I can answer from a number of elements. One is examples of impact. I noticed that one of our guests in this session is a fellow named Manny Elkind, uh, who I've worked with for some decades at Columbia. Manny is a, a coach in the space of values. And we can go back more than a decade where I saw some of his work with executives around values. And I was just struck by the impact. Of course, it's not the same for everyone, but people would come out of a session with Manny, you know, with a new glint in their eye. And, and I got curious about what was behind that. So some of it is seeing the impact as people discover their values. Take a step back from that. You know, like you, I have become very interested in personal leadership leading oneself as a foundation for leading others and leading organizations. And if I was trying to expect that, expect, explain that interest, I suppose I would say it comes from just a recognition that what we do as leaders is not restricted to the, the letter of our job descriptions. We're doing it all the time in all interactions. And, you know, it happens on the streets of New York City as much as it does in a meeting with your team. And also, you know, like you, I do come from a background thinking about strategy and something always occurred to me, and I think it's still very important as people develop themselves as leaders, if you think about strategic advantage, you know, it depends on differentiation. And at one point, you go back 20 years, 10 years before you, you and I and others were working in this area, a lot of the views on leadership was really kind of very accessible, explicit ideas, right? There's kind of a list of best practices and, you know, a good team has these features and a transformational leader does these things. And I suppose it occurred to me right, you know, from the exposure to those ideas as a someone who thinks strategically, that it can't be that easy. That if it was just a matter of taking these explicit ideas and following these best practices, well, you know, everybody would be a great leader because we know it makes a difference. And if you could just access the recipe and and implement it, people would do that. So it occurred to me that it must be that it's hard to follow those best practices. And really the explanation for that is it requires a personal transformation. So from that kind of puzzle about how we map the importance of this subject to the fact that you know, it's hard to do and the people who do it well do get, get rewarded introspectively and, and externally that I arrived at personal leadership is something that has just grabbed my professional attention. Yeah, so beautiful. You know, I'm just curious, Paul, um, in making that journey, have you felt a certain natural instinct to turn the lens within and in a sense, make it both inform and inspire this chapter of your own career and life? Absolutely. You know, I think you can't, you can't avoid doing that. I don't consider myself gifted at personal leadership. You know, in a sense, I hope I'm in a position which is like many of the people joining us, 
which is that I've recognized the importance and it's sort of a constant struggle to understand and regulate myself. But I am a really systemic user of the ideas that you and I and others talk about leading ourselves, growth mindset, being awareness of values. So like um, hopefully many of the people who are on this call, I carry around a representation of my values. I remind myself about them at some of the times when I kind of feel that I need uh, a kind of infusion of uh, self-awareness and, and confidence. And, um, you know, in a sense, we could take your personal leadership class and the various modules. I find I'm constantly in a struggle uh, to do my best to put those into action. So I'm a consumer and this might be part of my interest and uh, and maybe also I hope part of my empathy with the other people who are doing this work, because it's very hard for me. I sometimes talk to more recently, I talked to my students in executive MBA about my own progress towards developing a growth mindset, which was 20 years of a lot of setbacks and still a work in progress. So I'm, uh, I'm empathetic to, to learners in this space. Thank you for sharing that personal journey, uh, Paul. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was mentioning how LinkedIn was on fire, you know, about this session. And one of the uh, folks who commented on this post that you were coming, Gilly. Gilly said, it's important to keep your laminated card for a rainy day. And initially I was like, I don't know Gilly directly, but like, it sounds to me like he might be you know, communicating this comment for some other post somewhere. <laughs> like, you know, we just announced Paul for a values-based culture. What is he talking about? Like keeping a laminated card for a rainy day. But then I remember, of course, what it is he talks about, because I know that's a core part, you know, Paul, of how you make this very actionable for people. So we'll come back and we'll talk about the actionability later. But could you just uh, help explain to, to folks here what, what Gilly meant by that? Yeah, gladly. So this is also something I've learned from others. Manny, who I mentioned, was before me in terms of this kind of concrete representation of values. But the students in my classes leave with a representation of their values on a laminated card they can put in their wallets. And I encourage them. I ask them to at least try that out and see to see how it works for them. And I think many or most of them give it a try. And uh, like Gilly, I get the great pleasure, and I have to say it's one of the most satisfying parts of my professional life, that years, sometimes a decade after the initial, uh, initial work we do in class, I'll hear someone talk about how they're using the concrete manifestation of their values, the kind of capacity to bring their values top of mind that the card represents. Uh, of course, you can personalize this tool. So over the years, I've had people send me symbols that they've created that represent their values. I recall a kind of snowboard that somebody had etched their values on and kind of artistic posters that end up in people's offices. So I love the personalization uh, that, uh, that some people have applied to that tool. But the idea really is, you know, to do the work of surfacing and identifying your top values and then to keep them handy, you know, so you can raise them to conscious competence. So on the rainy day that Gilly referred to, when it feels that the world is a little bit against you, or you're torn between dimensions of yourself with choices that are very hard to make, that you can remind yourself about what matters most to you. We find that being able to do that reminder actually has a really powerful effect on individuals. We study this experimentally, but people bring their values to the top of mind and they're more ethical. 
Others perceive individuals with the top of the mind more positively. They view them as more trustworthy and more authentic. And people are even happier if they bring their values to the top. So powerful. I want to ask you if you can help us think about, for those who have not had the benefit of being in your class, what are values? And, you know, one of the things that I sometimes, you know, muddle over is um, the distinction between values and if you want to call them like core beliefs or principles that people might have. You know, Ray Dalio has come out with this book on, on his principles after a very successful career in investment banking. And it's, um, you know, it, it's something that I think is also giving people pause, right? You're going to think about sort of, you know, what is my version of, you know, that, that kind of Ray Dalio list of principles. So, yeah. So would you have a way of connecting the two, uh, you know, or, or, you know, correlating them? So, and as you just kind of think about your response to that, Paul, one thing I just, for the you know benefit of our audience, you know, highlight is that you just said that you don't practice personal leadership as much and you'd like to become better at, you know, at, at all of those things. But I mean, guys, for those of us who have been in Paul's class and therefore who know Paul, right? And of course, I can vouch for that in my own observations of you, Paul, in the classroom. I mean, you are incredibly invested in personal leadership. The manner in which in which you engage with, you know, our audiences uh, that I've seen, the manner in which you engage with, you know, the people like me and others, you know, your colleagues and, and the passion you bring, the commitment you bring, the attentiveness you bring, the amount of time that you put in, the individual attention that you show, you know, the care with which you're really invested in helping uplift, you know, everyone to their best game and invest in sort of like helping their growth happen. I don't know. I mean, like to me, that is a very inspiring, you know, example of personal leadership in action. So, um, and, and I mean, folks, I mean, feel free to use chat to share your own stories and examples of how um, you, you've experienced that energy from Paul. I mean, there's a reason why you've been, you know, acknowledged through so many of these awards as well. So anyway, that is not as much uh, something I invite you to respond to as much I just wanted to share. But my question to you was about values versus like principles and, and beliefs. Thank you. So I think that this is a really useful distinction to make. And let's, you know, let's just say from the outset that values and beliefs, and I think principles there, ultimately attitudes are associated on a kind of chain of inference where we go from some kind of stimuli in the world to kind of making sense of it. But values occupy a particular, and I think a very critical place on that chain, and it's worth recognizing that. So a value is a principle of evaluation. Right? So your values are what determine for you that some object is good or bad or important. Right. So these are the ultimate ends, ultimately, that you are pursuing. And something I want to say, and this is going to be quite significant, the distinction between certainly beliefs and attitudes is that in the work that I've done purely in the space of values, you know, at this point, I've probably solicited values of 10,000 leaders from around the world, of all kinds of people. Overwhelmingly, I would say almost completely, every value that those 10,000 people have cited as one of their top values is one that almost everybody else in the set, everybody else in humanity would recognize as a value would say, yes, you know, that is something which is valuable. More of that in the world is good. Now, they, of course, would say, and they say all the time, it's not one of my top values. It's, it's a value. It's a good value. It's not one of my very top values. That difference in prioritization is why values matter, I think. But when people truly cite their values, the things they cite have a kind of universal recognition as values, right? So I would say it's only at the very fringes of my empirical work and values that anybody ever cites 
anything that everybody else would not agree is a value. So this is, here's what's critical about that. Compare that to what people often start to think about if you just raise the topic of values in a kind of common conversation. They often think about attitudes, like your position with regard to some object, maybe a kind of political question. Sometimes people say, well, that's a value, the position you take on some political question. It's actually, that's an attitude. You know, your, your evaluation of some specific object is an attitude. And sometimes people also confound values and beliefs. Your belief is how you think the world works. It's if there's more of X, then more of Y will happen. I think of beliefs as connecting values, but a belief is not the same thing as a value. And people can disagree, and we know they disagree acutely over attitudes. And certainly people have different beliefs about the mechanics. If you do more X, will you get more Y? Or someone else thinks you'd get more Z. But values people don't disagree about. They have different priorities, but they recognize each other's values. So when I think that a principle could be a value, or it might be a combination of beliefs and values. If the principle is like a behavioral rule, like, you know, you should always speak first in a meeting, then that's not only a value, that's a that's probably some value, some outcome you're pursuing combined with beliefs about social dynamics. So the word principle could be used to represent values or something more downstream. But I guess what I would like to emphasize most is that I think a lot of the power of values um, is that they're not exclusionary. If you know somebody else's values, you're drawn towards them, even if the values are different from your own. They're a source of generating respect. I think that they're a great ingredient of resolving interpersonal conflict. And so in that sense, I encourage people to remember that values are the, the very early, the kind of fundamental stage about what are the ultimate ends. More of this in the world is a good thing to me and not so much about the means to get there. People disagree about the means. I think almost universally, if people are honest, if psychologically healthy people are honest about the ends, they can respect each other's positions. Very powerful. You talked about non-exclusionary. Values are non-exclusionary. Let's come back and actually reflect a little bit more on that, uh, a little bit closer to the end of our conversation, because I, I'm intrigued about whether that uh, creates possibilities for us in a world where we are facing you know, a fair amount of strife and, 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 and divisions at some level. If there is a path forward in leadership for, for some individuals to lead the charge of appealing and invoking certain shared universal values as a basis for helping design resolve some of those boundaries, you know, I'd be curious. Um, let's come back to that. For now, maybe we can take a few minutes, Paul, on the individual's journey and then move it to the organization's journey around values. You know, for those of us who haven't had the benefit of being in your class, you know, what is the advice you might give someone to get more connected with what is most unique to them, most true to them? in terms of their core values. It is the kind of conversation that we have naturally so in, you know, in our educational system as such. We were taught mathematics and history and, you know, and science, but but this idea about like going through this process of self-discovering this intangible thing called your values. You know, do you have maybe just a, a couple of prescriptions that you can offer our audience? I would offer, I guess, two key inputs to that. One is reflection. You know, I had said that values are the thing, the principles that determine that some object for you is good, bad, or important. Right? So if you reflect on peak moments in your career, in your life, whether they're good, bad, or simply they feel really important to you and try and distill them to the essence, the essence is your values, right? So um, what's your best day at work in the last year? And what was it about that day that made it 
so great? Uh, what was the worst day at work in the last year? What was wrong with that day? What was missing from that day that caused it to be negative? So your answers to questions like that will be in the space of your values. So the first step is reflection, reflection on your the things you feel strongly about and getting at the why behind them. Now, there's another step that I do think turns out, I think it turns out to be really important for putting values into action. And that is working on the kind of personal translation of articulating this kind of sense of importance into language. I do think this is important, uh, that this is personal, because I've really seen that the language that the language that people use is, you know, it differs. Uh, you can get people to talk about their values and they might look at the labels they use and say, oh, this person's baffling to me. But then when they unpack the labels, they really find a greater understanding and, and connections with each other. So, you know, the work we do helping people see their values includes encouraging them to do reflection, but then just presenting them with options for articulation to find the ones that are just most, most compelling. You know, people who've done classes with me know that we kind of give them chances to train values and we force them to choose and we kind of tap into the intuition about about what va values matter most. But I'll also just say is kind of getting at the fact that we articulate values symbolically. I'll just mention uh, that I've been doing some work over the last couple of years actually trying to get at values from the use of language and it turns out to be doable. Right? So what we do is we take text, we take essays that students write when they go to business school, and we do machine learning to try and distill values from um, the language that they use. And we can do it. Now, we can't come up with a kind of set of values that are exactly their values, but we could take two individuals and we can say, oh, their values are more similar or more dissimilar based on what we've been able to distill from the language they use. So, you know, there's a sense about what matters most and you've got to kind of tap into that sense. And I think the way you do that is reflection. And then you've got to find out for you, how do you express that sense? And you do it in language. And I think it's a matter about finding these words, which are the symbols for you that unpack these kind of uh, the deeper impulses. Reflection and our articulation. Yeah, thank you. You know, Paul, it, it's such an important spark, you know, for people to have. And uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to see how, how many of us in chat are just kind of fondly remembering how you brought them to that moment in the journey that you've taken them on. I want to share a quote here from one of the heroes I admire, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, who um, went through a lot of personal strife and at some point discovered that she really wasn't clear about what she stood for. You know, that maybe that pre-juncture from where you are inviting people to do the reflection. And then she did come to a really good place and ultimately had a very storied life and career and you know mark on the world and here's a quote from her i don't know if Paul, this is something you, you've come across but I, I thought this might be very apropos she says to be mature so she said this later in her life as she reflected in a sense on her own journey i think she's commenting as much on where she was as she is on lighting a fire with others about it she said to be mature you have to realize what you value most it is extraordinary to discover that comparatively few people reach this level of maturity they seem never to have paused to consider what has value for them. They spend great effort and sometimes make great sacrifices for values that fundamentally meet no real needs of their own. Perhaps they have imbibed the values of their particular profession or job or community or neighbors or parents or family. 
not to arrive at a clear understanding of one's own values is a tragic waste. You have missed the whole point of what life is for. It's beautiful. Yeah. So let's move into the organizational space, if that makes sense. Yeah. We're at a point in history where I think there's a, tell me what you think about what, what's happening, you know, in, in the business world and in business schools. But the sense I get is that with every new generation of students that we have and employees that enter the workforce, there is a growing hunger for guys. Yes, I want to earn the right paycheck. I, I want the right position and role. But I, I actually want to feel very harmonized in terms of who I think I'm authentically, you know, really meant to be and, and what you are offering me in the workplace as a climate and as a cause. And so this, this notion of values to me is starting to become so central. And I think no business or no leader who may have, you know, as much or more gray hair than you and me. I mean, at the point is, at the end of the day, they're, they're starting to wake up to this fact that regardless of what it was like when they were in their 20s and 30s, at this point, if we've got to attract and, you know, retain and inspire this next generation, we have to become a lot more open to realizing that, in a sense, the laws of business are starting to evolve and purpose and value starting to get to the very core of what it is. And almost like every day, you hear about some controversy, right? I mean, recently, you know, Goldman Sachs has been in the news. Uh, you know, McKinsey has been in the news. I mean, a lot of these storied icons of the business world that many of us have just like habituated to thinking of as like the pinnacles of success and they're in their spaces and the ones that one points to for best practices are getting a little bit, you know, and perhaps in a hopefully a healthy way, like shaken up and woken up, right? And so anyway, I'm just curious about what your thoughts are, A, about the centrality today of values in the workplace. And then and then perhaps we can talk a little bit more about how, how to get there. Yeah. So I think there's evidence in support of your premise that is time goes on that we find some places more than others, but employees are looking for more. And we can talk about meaning broadly, but and also concerned more about the impact of uh, their work. So I do think in that sense, I don't think it's a brand new thing. I think that, you know, broadly organizational cultures being a real kind of, we've known it's a powerful lever, lever for performance and collaboration for a long time, but I just feel that we're sort of in the era of you know, organizationally, the era of culture, but it is aggregation and affiliation around values that I think is becoming more and more the difference maker in terms of how people feel about their careers and their organizations, and therefore how they work with each other. And I would say, and perhaps this is where you might be thinking about taking the conversation, but the organizational responses to this phenomenon, organizations know this, but their responses are not always fully satisfying. In particular, I'll get back to how I began. You know, I said that, look, leadership is hard, so it can't be as easy as just taking some solution off the shelf. It's got to involve some kind of transformation. And I think that when it comes to values, some organizations are perhaps falling into the same trap. It's not as easy as having some consultants or the CEO script out a set of official values and saying, this is us. There has to be a kind of resonance between the kind of superficial articulation of the values and really what's deeper in the organization. Think about it as an authenticity for the organization, which is actually difficult to produce, right? So we get all kinds of organizations. You, we see it all the time. I bet everybody in this audience is experiencing it work with uh, some frequency and regularity, you know, investments and articulations of values, but you have to do it right. And I do think that an organization that decides, in fact, we know from research, an organization decides to put integrity on the web page as a, as a value does not actually change anything in its operations. Its performance doesn't change simply by putting that label. So I I think the work, the work of leveraging values for organizations like 
individuals is deeper. And I think you have to do it to actually get the benefits. Yeah. Let's maybe brainstorm a little bit on this, uh, Paul, because I, I'm with you. I think that um, while people are getting fired up about it, we do need to help guide and support leaders in thinking about sort of how to really make it real, make it real for them. It's something that, uh, you know, in our work at Mentora Institute, for example, you know, there's a fair amount of these conversations and these kinds of projects on, underway right now about like, how do we get them really, you know, for our clients and other organizations, get it into the DNA, get into the daily practices, the hard choices, the, you know, kind of conversation that happened when, you know, even nobody's looking. And uh, one of the things which I want to test with you as a thought that uh, has been on my mind is what is the motivation for doing that work? If the motivation is purely to protect your position in the marketplace or to do it because that's what the external pressures and demands are on you, I wonder if it's a, you know, a reliable and stable enough source of motivation. And, and instead, you know, should the motivation not ultimately have to come from a very authentically felt place within? where, you know, the key stewards of that organization, whether it is the board or the CEO or the C-suite, you know, at the minimum to start with this group of key influences, right? And then one can even think about the investors who are, you know, imposing demands as to what is it that they're seeking from the organization. You know, some part of that ecosystem, you know, needs to feel from a very deep place that the way I have led my life, the way we have worked together has been good, but now it can be great. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, to all of the people who have invested in bringing us to the present point with the products and services and resources and, you know, storied names we have and, you know, and all of that. But to go from here to there, we've we got to advance humanity and part of that is to advance ourselves. And, and they've got to feel that from within. They've got to feel that. Anyway, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? This is just something that's been coming to me. Yeah. So what I'm representing here is, I think, kind of the tension that, that Hitendra is describing. Right. So I have in mind here what I call official values is the articulation of values from an organization. And I'm suggesting here that ideally it is coming from two sources, kind of top down from the position in the market, the strategy. You know, we could imagine certain cultures and values being associated with success in certain strategies. So certain values might support a strategy that requires more innovation. Different values might support a strategy that's more on efficiency. And that turns out to matter, right? So there's evidence that some of the kind of market results depend on that alignment. But there's another alignment here, which I do think is the kind of multiplier. And I actually think it's necessary to, to get the other result which is what we might call authenticity, right? So what I'm trying to represent here by this word cloud is the values that people in the organization actually hold. And Hatendra, you talk, I like that you talked about stakeholders, including investors, and I think it could be customers as well. But I would also encourage you to think, you said start with the people at the top of the organization. I can understand that. They've got influence on the culture. But I think that you should be really inclusive in terms of all of the participants in the organization. You know, uh, I think that if the bottom two thirds of the organization is kind of alienated from the official values, I think that would have dire implications for profitability and for higher purposes. So the idea here is that this resonance of kind of the organization's values with the organic culture, what the people in the organization actually feel is being important to them, that turns out to matter a lot. And, you know, we know this empirically that if people are part of a team or a department or an organization that they feel is aligned with their own values, it is 
transformational in terms of their performance. They're better collaborators. They give more to the organization. They go the extra mile. But it also affects their commitment and what they take from the organization. You know, you feel like the organization is a home to you if you have this resonance between what the organization stands for and what you yourself feel is important, your own values. And Hitendra, I'll pick up on your point about more than just the financial results. So in some of the empirical research I've done, you find that people will leave an organization that does not align with their own values, even if they're paid substantially more. So I've got one study that shows that difference in value fit from somewhat weak to somewhat good, uh, people associate with a 40% raise in pay, right? So you could have organizations that are making 40% more profits and distributing that among their stakeholders But if the stakeholders really feel that the organization isn't um, aligned with their values, the results show that they will stop their association. They'll stop contributing to the organization. If they're investors, they'll invest elsewhere. If they're employees, they'll work elsewhere. Customers will give up value from from products. They feel that there's a tension with their underlying uh, personal values. So, you know, this is not ephemeral. It is a fundamental, actually quite a big input into utility. And when I think we really slight ourselves and and everybody else in humanity, when we think about utility and just kind of, you know, dollar terms, uh, it's not simply a function of the profitability. People trade that off against the how the outcome was produced. And that how in terms of values matters a lot. So the beautiful thing about that is if you do the work of creating this alignment, you get better performance and you get the benefits that people enjoy when they're resonant, uh, their values are resonant with those of the organizations they're part of, right? So this, there is this kind of magic position where you can get the best of both worlds, it does take some work. Yeah, it's interesting because almost like we are changing some of the usual measures of how we define fit between an employee in an organization or, or across employees in an organization. And, you know, the, I remember when I joined uh, McKinsey, you know, after my uh, time in graduate school, I thought that what I was looking for in terms of like the tribes within McKinsey were, were the people who were interested in the same industries that I was interested in or in the same functions and uh, kind of like strategic issues that I was interested in. But I think what, what you're defining here is that there's a whole different kind of currency of, of connection uh, and alignment across people, which is their values. And, uh, and how do you feel about the values of the organization or the team that you're a part of? I agree completely. And I want to, but I want to say something about that that might be on the minds of some in the audience. I just want to kind of raise the label fit that you used. I agree with what you said. And I think organizations that operate from that principle and employees who operate from that principle um, will do better for themselves and other stakeholders. We can't use the word fit in a sloppy way, right? So there is, I think, an appropriate critique, one way of thinking about fit that suggests that people have used that label of fit superficially and they've used it to exclude people based on things that are not the kind of deeper values. Of course, I would be against that kind of organization, but, and I don't think, I don't think you should throw out the concept of fit because some people have used it in a sloppy or maybe even abusive way. So what I would say, and I'll just, I'll be empirical about this, that there's lots of reason to believe that kind of most effective teams and the most effective organizations have a foundation of alignment around values and diversity on lots of other dimensions. 
that's a really powerful combination. And in a sense, the alignment on values and the diversity on thinking style and perspective and experience and interests, those multiply each other to, you know, to create, I think, wonderful outcomes. And you can produce that, right? So the work I've done empirically on values suggests, look, they don't come out of nowhere. For example, values do have an association with national cultures, but it is not overwhelmingly strong. I mean, I think you would... say first that values are personal, they're individual. They come from our families, yes. They come from our cultures, yes. But just because you know the nation of origin and the demographics of some individual, your capacity to predict their values is pretty poor. There's something really individual about them. So what this means is that you can build organizations where people fit on values and that represent diversity in all kinds of other perspectives and experience. And it's that combination that I think has so much potential. Um, So I'm completely with you. I think that people in their careers who use this lens of value alignment to choose employers, at least in the long run, I think it's very satisfying. And I I think that if you don't do that, those are the kinds of careers that you get towards the end of them and you're kind of thinking, what have I done for the last uh, 30 years? And organizations that take that perspective, I think, produce a lot of benefit in terms of performance, yes, but also in terms of the satisfaction of the stakeholders. Yeah, thank you. I mean, actually, I can just offer myself up as one data point uh, for all of this uh, transition, because um, just this morning, I was uh, thinking a little bit about how at a certain point in my career, I was doing X, Y, Z. And I was just realizing today that even if it was actually going to be highly financially rewarding for me to go back and do X, Y, Z, there's just no way that I would choose to do it, uh, you know, with where I am today. I mean, you know, with, with God's grace, I don't have like, uh, you know, a, kind of an acute you know, state of sort of hunger and deprivation where I'm just desperate for any, you know, any kind of project. And perhaps if I got to that state, Maslow's hierarchy, who knows, you know, but in general, I, I just feel like there's a metamorphosis that happens when one adds this dimension of meaning, purpose, and values on top of some of those more traditional like external markers of what uh, what drives one. And I'm guessing that you you must have seen a lot of that transformation happen with uh, with your students in, in the class as you invoke and offer this up. I mean, I'm seeing so much of them just like talking about it here in chat. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, you know, I'm thinking a little bit, we talked about fit. I'm thinking about something somebody shared with me in the last, certainly in the last year. So it's relatively recent, but a student from Columbia who had taken the values tool and used it explicitly in the job search. I mean, literally put it on the table in job interviews and reported to me that it was always rewarding. They didn't always recognize a fit. You know, in some instances, they would recognize, oh, this is a misfit. We should stop the interview. That even happened in an instance. But this uh, uh, former student reported that he found fit by doing this in some instances, got a surprising number of job offers, and no one resisted the idea of taking the job interview into the space of values. He said that it was always a generative step to put the values on the table and say, hey, let's talk about this. Nobody said, no, we're talking about your answers to the interview questions, or we're talking about the test we gave you on your creativity. No one said that. They all said, yeah, let's talk about values. This is important. So, you know, I think it would be, you know, I'd be very happy if coming out of conversations like this, people felt enabled, maybe even entitled to consider their values as part of these choices. It, I don't think it's a selfish thing to do because I think you're better for others when you yourself are grounded in your values. Uh, I think it's just part of being effective. 
And, you know, it's a way of thinking that I think would have been less common in the past. So we've got to bring ourselves around to it. But I think it's absolutely legitimate and it makes a big difference for you and others. Paul, you know, I can take the conversation into this non-exclusionary, you know, kind of like point you made about values, uh, which, you know, putting it another way, the inclusionary possibilities in an approach to life, which is very grounded in values. Now, there is a piece of research that uh, I, I found very refreshing and infused with just a lot of possibilities that you have been doing recently around identity and, you know, going going beyond the existing paradigm, which is an important step, you know, that the world has been striving to take to create a more inclusive world for us by helping people understand, you know, themselves and each other through that lens of race and, and gender and, uh, you know, uh, sexual preference and, uh, you know, you know, et cetera, right? Uh, and so, but you're taking it to another level. And, and we know there have been, you know, some hiccups, some challenges in trying to make that inclusion aspiration really, you know, a lived truth in, in culture and organizations. Some people are, you know, invested in it, inspired by it, and others are skeptical of it in, in the way the movement so far has been, you know, offered up to the world. And I, I see possibilities in this robust identity approach that you've taken that I think is worth highlighting and sharing with our audience here. So, so can you talk a little bit, can you just introduce us to what is robust identity and what is the couple of key, you know, benefits that you have found from having people acquire, you know, this, this practice as, as one of their core values? I love to talk about that. So what you have here is something that, you know, recent students from Columbia Business School will recognize and maybe other people will. This is what we call an identity map. And, you know, you don't have to come to the Columbia Business School to be in the space of having been asked to kind of represent and map your identity. It happens at other top business schools. It happens in education, you know, throughout the kind of cycle of education. Organizations are investing in this way of doing it. You know, we do it like other business schools do. And I became very interested in thinking about the implications of an identity for performance on, on a job, for fit, for relationships, and so on. So, you know, I was struck by the fact that the world is generating hundreds of millions of these maps all the time, and we don't yet know much about what they predict. Um, so I'm an empiricist, and I set out to study that. And I started with a concept, and I think there's other directions you could go, but I started with the concept of robustness, which is simply the idea that you have more dimensions to your identity. Um, so literally what I've done is I've taken these maps and I've counted how many distinct representations of the self does somebody have. And now let me just say something about identity and personal identity. This is what is salient about you to you, right? So it is not simply characteristics. Your identity might include things like race and gender, but people don't always have those things as part of their identity. You know, sometimes you'll ask someone for their identity and they'll cite things that may not, you know, include what things that are objectively true about them. So these are not just a description of individuals. This is how the individual sees himself or herself. And what we have, what I've learned in this research, the first step, I think there's much more to be done here, but if you have more of this multidimensional representation of yourself, what I call a robust identity, it's a good thing for making connections to other people. So people with robust identity form more network relationships. They kind of maintain more of the kind of social capital that allows you to bridge differences and access ideas and get things done. And I think, uh, and by the way, this is even more true in the face of diversity 
on other dimensions, right? So if you look at two individuals who are demographically diverse, their likelihood of connecting to each other is even more dependent on this kind of multi-dimensionality of their own identities, their own representations of themselves. So I guess what I would say, Hitendra, is that the point of this, and I think the idea about the potential for integration and organizations and society comes from understanding the multidimensionality that we all, of course, represent. I mean, these are not really different people. These are people whose self-concepts are more or less inclusive. And so far, and I've been studying important relationships as a dependent variable, I've looked a little bit at performance in organizations uh, and some other outcomes, including well-being. And they lead me to the position that understanding yourself in this more inclusive way, not just a employee of Goldman Sachs or a student at the Columbia Business School, but 30 or 40 other elements it turns out to be a resource that gives you the capacity to make connections with others and uh, and see yourself as being effective. It gives you kind of an opportunity to move from situation to situation and find what is in yourself that, that you could bring to bear to create um, a positive result. Yeah, I think there's something so powerful there, uh, Paul. I'm, I'm uh, hoping that you're going to continue to invest in this area and um, unpack you know this topic for us more and more in the in the months and years ahead because uh seems like you're at the tip of something you know quite quite profound and and uh it'll inform you know this this field you know in, in so many beautiful ways i i was just thinking about when i think about sort of some of the lessons of leadership right that i you know sometimes teach in personal leadership uh some of the conversations and work that you know we've had a chance to do in in at mentora as well around the theme of inclusion and creating inclusive cultures and inclusive leadership um you know there's there's a principle that you know that that i've sort of put out there and and i, I think i'm seeing a connection to this which is that um in some ways, it's it's risky to you know put people into any kind of box, any kind of box, you know, based on a socio demographic variable that you make most salient about their collective identity, uh, you know, within your organization. That this is the community, or that is the community. You know, it has a certain import. It has a certain import, and I think there's some good things happening here to remedy some of the social injustices of the past that, that are really important, you know, to capture in so many ways. But there's also this notion, though, that um, sometimes you run the risk that you then assume that everybody, you know, in that box is the same, whereas actually everybody's lived experience could be quite different, you know, quite different. And so we lose that ability to, in a very discerning way, see people for who they are as the individual thumbprints and yeah. starting to start to see them in, in groups terms right and uh, i'm thinking like on what you're saying there is the opportunity to unshackle our thinking and to always challenge us to see people in a much more multifaceted way absolutely and what i would say in terms of what organizations are doing is that the first step i think could be perfectly healthy right so i am for recognizing dimensions of identity in their multitude but what i would say is i saw my old friend bob Cullhan is on this call who's an improviser so i would say when it comes to identity remember yes and right so recognize the parts of your identity you know your organization might offer an employee support group around some identity category if you feel it, you belong there, join it. Um, but don't use that to exclude all of the other elements of identity that, that might appeal to you to represent yourself. So don't allow any one dimension to crowd out the other. So I would say yes and understand it starts, I think it starts really not only with how we characterize others, but I think it starts with how we characterize ourselves because others will take the cue from us. My research shows in a sense that that my perception of you depends on your identity, which happens within your head. 
So I would say cultivate the multidimensionality of that. Um, don't, redu don't reduce yourself to an archetype or a stereotype or a caricature of just one category. Embrace all the categories that appeal to you, and I mean all of them, and maybe even do a little bit of discovery to find some others that you might want to add to your self-awareness. Yeah, and there's something so beautifully mathematical about how that leads to more active cultivation of your network, right? Because uh, from as you've said, because uh, the more you have those, the more likelihood there is that if you randomly bump into somebody, and if you're able to invoke that in them as well, or you're searching through their identity profile, and you, you just find common ground, you find common ground with perhaps with everybody. Yeah, I think it ha it works in two ways. One is you if there's more dimensions to you, there's more opportunities for common ground. But even in the absence of that, the truth of the matter is that if somebody is more multidimensional, we see the psychological process is called individuation. We see them more as individuals as opposed to representations of some category or group, and individuals are appealing. We are attracted to people who we see as individuals. So yes, you can discover commonality. In the absence of commonality, simply the multidimensionality gives you a platform and a foundation for connecting. I see. I see. How interesting. So it's not just that you're finding common ground with them, but somehow they are more drawn to your inner charisma of some kind. You know, baby. Yeah, you could call it a type of charisma that we're oh, yeah. attracted to people who are multidimensional. Yeah. Now there's there's uh, if we swing that pendulum to the almost the other extreme end of the spectrum, I'm going to be you know intrigued to see if uh, you and others um, invested in this kind of uh, academic pursuit of studying identity might at some point see um, see possibilities in this ball, which is um, when I take a very Gandhian kind of lens, you know, on, on identity, you know, he would say that, look, we're all very different from the outside, you know, in terms of our faith and gender and color of skin and all of that. But from the inside, e each of us is the soul, you know, so this notion in kind of like spiritual traditions of uh, seeing everyone stand on that common ground of be being like the soul, <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I know that's not like perhaps one of the most uh, actively embraced kind of themes right now in, in, in the inclusion kind of world. But, you know, I, I see possibilities there to create breakthroughs in helping to unite and unify, you know, people, um, if we can ever train ourselves to go go beyond some of these uh, differences more to that more to that core. I, I don't know what you think of that. I think that it's true. And we, we can talk about the language to put onto it. I'll just translate it a little bit into kind of contemporary psychological science. There is literally evidence if you've got individuals from an out group that would typically that might be subject to negative stereotypes that if you know more about those individuals, that they're not just a member of this category, but they are a parent or a child, uh, and there's someone who does this outside of work, you know, you, you get the multidimensionality, the robust identity, then the likelihood of negative stereotyping goes down. Your attribution of humanity to them goes up, right? So call that humanization. You could use the label I used, individuation. You could talk about it as the soul, but something about the kind of sacredness of the individual is a function of avoiding this very simple categorization. Uh, if you want to call it soul, I don't object, uh, but there's evidence, I think, in support of what you said. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I actually was not as aware of that, so that was beautiful and important for me to hear. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was just curious if you could go back to your roots and what has defined and shaped shaped you at the very formative you know periods of your life and um you know just 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 share it a little bit with us so what was it like growing up as paul and what um what are one or two of those experiences that uh, you look back and say like you know that that made me who i am today 
Thank you for that question. Um, I guess I, I'll say I feel a little bit more prepared to answer it because I've been doing, started to do some of this work on identity. And I guess that that leads you to think about self-definition. But I'll tell you, formative, people who know me will know I'm a Canadian. I have a, you know, it's recently come back to my memory that my early life experience, my childhood was really much, very much in the space of these robust identities. You know, Canada is a country, I think a beautiful feature is that it's a really kind of multicultural country. And I lived in a part Part of it, we li I lived in kind of a street where you know every family was from a different, typically one generation, you know, maybe even with a parent born in a different country. Uh, it was incredibly diverse from that perspective, and there's probably so much that I absorbed in that context that you know is kind of bred in the bone, I suppose, in terms of my perspective. And I guess what's been happening in the last year or two, you know, both some of the, our own social and organizational trends that were in the middle and some of the research I've been doing is I've been kind of tapping back at, you know, some of the opportunities, I guess, I was presented early in life in recognizing all of the different elements that, that go into the self. And I think that I've been trying to remind myself about the significance of that. Um, so remembering that my something which a year ago might not have been salient to me, but that my parents were, of course, they were both immigrants, but they were actually a Protestant, um, Scottish Protestant and an Irish Catholic, which is a real kind of, at the moment, a sort of contagious mix. And of course, that was just my family. But as you come to think about identity, it becomes something which um, I reflect on probably as an advantage that I am coming from lots of fissures in terms of immigration and background. And, and my own kind of career transitions that I'm trying to think more, now more in terms of opportunities. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, some people here might know that I've um, recently published some work. There's, I've got an article in a very recent Harvard Business Review on what social class background does to your likelihood of becoming a manager. And the article makes the point that people from humble social class backgrounds are much less likely to be managers, and we should recognize that as a as kind of a feature when we're trying to build diverse organizations and use the human capital to its biggest potential. I think those things are true. Um, but it's also got me thinking that, you know, I come from a working class background and I've actually been trying to follow my own advice of not saying, oh, this is my category. You know, who am I? I'm a working class person at Columbia Business School. But instead to recognize the opportunities that's presented and how it mixes with the other things I've done in my life. So I guess I'm kind of going full circle to say that I'm a con on a constant struggle to implement personal leadership. And I suppose what I'm doing now is trying to follow the advice that I just gave to the people in the audience that I think that we benefit from understanding the multidimensionality of ourselves and apply that to myself and make the categories that are very salient there, but in correspondence and in the mix with lots of other things. That was powerful. You know, it, it reminded me of a story that I heard in my class just earlier this week from a student, Paul, uh, when you were talking about the working class identity and how to think of it more as, a, you know, a shaper in a, in a way that sort of defines and shapes values and takes you to kind of like the, the right powerful place. What one might otherwise see as a disadvantage, let's say, you know, and, and, and how do you see it in a different light? And so this student talked about how he said he grew up, he was very short. And he said, like, I, I was surrounded by really tall friends. And this one time we were able to go and see uh, see this big game. What is the baseball uh, team here in New York? The, the, the Yankees? 
Yankees. Yeah. yeah, I said we were going to see the game of the Yankees. And he said, like, after that, we want to collect autographs. So we were out there waiting for the players to come out. And then this one player comes out, and he's like very well regarded, very well known. He was the shortest player in the league. And he said that uh, this guy, he spots me out and he asks the security to kind of, you know, open up the cordon and actually let me in. And he said, and then he talks to me for like 10 minutes and asks me about my background, my school and everything. And then before he lets me go back to my friends, he says, you and I, he says, you know, we're very blessed. And I looked at him like, well, what does he mean? We are very blessed because like, I can see one thing we have very common is like we're both short, you know, compared to, you know, look, look at my friends towering over me. And he said that we have at an early stage in life had the opportunity to really navigate, you know, through certain, you know, social and other challenges and to take on certain things. So the mental strength, the mental tenacity and resilience that we have built, which these guys, they still need to build, <laughs> you know, that's going to like really help you all through your life. Right? Remember that. Yeah, I'm thinking now about a conversation I had when I published this article. I had lots of lovely conversations from people who reached out to me and talked about their own experience. And I did a really impactful for me, a phone call with someone who just reached out in that way, who in some ways was very different from me. She was a woman from the Caribbean, but she'd connected over this kind of discussion of social class. And one of the things that she shared that really resonated with me is she said, oh, you know, I can't use the language I grew up with. And she didn't mean English. She was a native English speaker, but she couldn't use the way of describing things and the homilies and things like that because it would be out of place in the global organization she was part of. That really resonated with me. I often think, oh, you know, where I come from in a GM town in Ontario, we would have said this, but I can't say that thing here. You know, it would be really stepping in it. But then I also thought that people who know multiple languages, it's actually a resource for creativity. We, this is literally true. And here, this person and I, within English, have two different dialects that are, that are coming from backgrounds and that we've had the chance to kind of recognize that and hopefully turn that into an opportunity. So I like that way of thinking. And, you know, it's, I think, very much in a spirit of, you know, the same thing we said about values, I think we could say with elements of identities. I think they're really important to recognize. I think that they are most useful to us when we use them in a non-exclusionary way. Thank you. And that was a great story to, to end our uh, conversation with. Any final just guidance you want to give our audience as we bring this conversation to closure? Actually, I'd like to say, you know, to everybody, including many old friends I see here, that I'd love to continue to hear about your journeys with these topics, your own experience, the way you've used some of the things we may have learned together. It's incredibly satisfying for me. And in that spirit, I'll just mention that I got a real boost yesterday. I won't say the name of the person, but the person is on this call that I went to my office for the first time in three months. And I, there was a card waiting for me, a New Year's card in the shape of a champagne bottle. Somebody had written a, a love, somebody I hadn't seen in a few years, written a lovely sentiment. And I looked for that email and I couldn't find it. But I'll say a thank you to that person here and uh, in this in the same spirit to say I'd love to hear from any and all of you. Yeah, so true, so true. I think all of us uh, really thrive on those connections. You have such a heartfelt uh, connection with your audiences, uh, Paul. And uh, I'm so grateful that you shared that sweet moment with us uh, from yesterday. And uh, whoever it is, I want to thank you for doing that outreach. It means, uh, of course, a lot to Paul, but means a lot to all of us uh, recognizing that uh, be, we have these gifts and, and these connections with all of you. So um, thank you so much, Paul. It's, it's been a great joy to have you with us. Uh, I'm grateful for all the wonderful work you're doing, the path you're on, the growth that you're pursuing, uh, both for yourself, but you know, more importantly, to kind of help offer to all of us as well. And I look forward to having you back here in, in a sections. 
as well. So, it's a real pleasure. Uh, it's such a good for me to have this conversation. And thanks to everybody who joined us. Thank you all. We will see you soon. And uh, Godspeed. Take care.